It's an 87th Precinct podcast special episode. Hello everyone, it's Paul here. I'm really pleased to be able to bring you an interview with the author Erin MacDonald. Erin is both an author and a professor of English in London, Ontario, who I first became aware of when I began research for the whole podcast, as she's written an absolutely essential book about the works of Ed McBain slash Evan Hunter, which was published in 2012 by McFarlane Books in their Companion to Mystery Fiction range. Now, that book's called Ed McBain, Evan Hunter, A Literary Companion, and it features articles and background information about Hunter's entire output, with entries for the books, characters, themes, as well as including some maps and chronological information and career information for the author. Erin has just published a new book in the same range, all about the books of Scottish crime novelist Ian Rankin, who I'm sure most of you are also big fans of. This is another remarkable research achievement, and so, knowing that she's completed it, I pounced and arranged this interview with her. We've been trying to get a chat with her for some time, but as Erin explains in the interview, the research process for this book and all her others has been massively intense and time-consuming, so we're grateful that we're now able to have had some time with her now that she's finished it. You can find Erin online at her website, which is erinemcdonald.com, so that's MacDonald, M-A-C, and the books are available through all the obvious places as both physical and digital editions. Pleased to say the Ed McBain one seems to be back in stock now. It was quite hard to find for a little while. And any fan of Ian Rankin or Ed McBain should really have these books alongside their collections on their bookshelf. So thanks again to Erin for joining me for this. And thanks to all of you for listening. Enjoy the interview. So first things first, Erin, congratulations on the new book. Thank you very much. Another remarkable achievement in the field of crime fiction uh, encyclopedia-ing. <laughs> That's a word, make that up. <laughs> That's a good word. Yeah. Uh, it's, well, I was trying to think of a way to describe this book quite quickly, or any of these two books in particular we're going to talk about. Right. And I suspect encyclopedia is quite a good word for them as due to the what the body of these books is. Yeah, they, they are alphabetical. We call them a companion. I actually called the McBain book a literary companion, but I didn't get away with that this time with the Rankin book. They insisted that it had the same name as the other books in the series, which is a companion to the mystery fiction. But, oh, right. but that's a bit of a misnomer because I do actually talk about all of his works, not just the mystery fiction. Same with McBain. Indeed. Rankin definitely wrote a lot more articles and, and stuff outside of his main day job, as it were, I think, than Ed McBain ever did, although he was known to review a book here or there from time to time, things like that. True. So Ian Rankin, then, basically, is, is the, new, the new book topic. When did you first come across uh, Ian's work? Oh, well, I think it would have been in the late 90s. A friend mm -hmm. suggested... To me, I think the first book I read was probably Dead Souls. So I didn't start reading Rankin right at the beginning of the Rebus series, which was in 1987. But uh, I came to him about 10 years later and just loved him right away. And was it the Rebus character that really drew you in? Yeah, probably mostly Rebus. But just like with McBain, I just loved the way that Rankin was able to write really entertaining novels 
but at the same time to really probe into the, uh, the social commentary that he wanted to say about society. Yeah, there's definitely some very uh, distinct equivalence between the two authors. There's also some quite distinct differences as well, I think, uh, particularly the notion of having Rebus as an individual focus, although obviously we meet other other detectives and police characters in this books, rather than the full force of the police in the police detective squad in the 87th precinct. That's right. That is a big difference. And in fact, when I wrote my dissertation on McBain, I called it Collective Hero, uh, after the idea that he really tried to focus on the fact that the police work as a team, that there isn't just one lone hero in contrast to the hard-boiled hero. Um, and Rankin was very very much aware that he was making Rebus in the mold of the hard-boiled hero more so than a co- type of collective hero. But of course, he doesn't work completely in isolation. He works with Siobhan and others as well. And what about the setting for for Ian Rankin's books? Have you spent any time in Scotland and Edinburgh in particular? Not as much as I'd like. I was there in 2005 and we're making plans to go there again next year if all goes well. Yeah, well, that'll be wonderful. It is a a marvellous place and I spent quite quite a lot of time spent there because my my girlfriend comes from the Scottish borders and was born in Edinburgh. So we're very sad to not to have been able to get there this year for reasons that are obvious to anyone who's listening to this at the time we're recording it yes i hope it i hope it'll be open to business uh, very soon i hope so but yeah that was a, another thing that's noticeable in the two choices of subjects for your books is their focus on a very specific location so mcbain although the you know your book covers more than just the 87th precinct is a very new york author Definitely. with isola isola being his uh, equivalent Rankin sets his books actually in Edinburgh. He didn't make up a new city for it. How do you feel about the location and the city being important in in these works? Yeah, it's incredibly important. I mean, to McBain, I think that because he was born and grew up in New York, New York, he felt that New York was really in his blood. And as you know, uh, Isola is really just a fictionalized version of Manhattan. And it was just, it was a character by itself in the novels no matter what novel he wrote, as you said, not just in the 87th Precinct, but in the uh, in the non-87th books as well. It was just such a part of his life. He felt really strongly about it. And it also works as what I call a microcosm of pretty much any North American city uh, with all the multiculturalism you have there and the crime and all of that. And you could, the same could be said for Rankin's use of Edinburgh, I think. Edinburgh is... A different city. Some would argue that it's actually quite different from other areas of Scotland, but yeah. but because it's an urban center, it's a great place to talk about issues like multiculturalism, immigration, crime, all that type of thing. The same way that McBain could do with New York. Yeah, and I think McBain and New York are so intrinsically linked. It's one of the reasons I've not yet got round to the Matthew Hope novels, for instance, mm-hmm. due to their setting somewhere outside of New York, which, although I know that McBain lived in Florida for a while, and it still feels quite strange to to be on the edge of taking that leap to reading about him writing about a different place because he seems so New York in the way that Rankin seems so Edinburgh. That's that's very true. That's a good point. Although I really enjoyed the Matthew Hope series. I hope you do read them. And I think that um, a lot of the same themes and, of course, the style that you'd find in the 87th Precinct is there in the Matthew Hope novels. 
Yeah, I, well, I look forward to getting around to them eventually, and who knows if I'll tag them on to the end of this podcast. It's got to end at some point, this whole series <laughs> we're doing. It's, it's, it's a few years of work. Not quite as many, not as many years of work as you've put into these books, though. Uh, you know, they take a lot of years, partly because I've had a full-time job and a family to raise at the same time. Uh, so I basically just worked on these books as a hobby in my spare time. So it took about six or seven years to write each of them. Uh, and then when you factor in the different drafts and the editing process and the proofreading and all that, it's really a kind of a massive undertaking, specifically because these guys wrote so much. Yeah. They were both, I mean, McBain was so prolific. Even when he was ill, he insisted on continuing to write. And uh, he wrote sometimes five, six books a year. And Rankin, even though he only tends to write about one book a year, he still, as you said, he writes a lot of articles for newspapers and does a lot of interviews and things like that. So, again, a lot of work to cover. Indeed. I suppose with McBain, at least it was a fixed amount of stuff. There was never going to be any more with his having passed away in 2005, whereas Ian, rather selfishly, keeps writing more and more stuff. (laughs) I've asked him to stop, but he just won't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I was going to ask then, I mean, both of these books contain articles about biographies and chronologies and maps as well. But obviously the main body of the work is this alphabetical encyclopedia part, the companion part. Mm -hmm. So what's your process for that research? And I wonder, has it changed over the years since you did the McBain one? Or is it still essentially some form of index card type research? I like to think that I was a little bit more systematic with the Rankin book, but... (laughs) For the most part, I work in a, um, I don't want to say a haphazard way, but I I work when the inspiration strikes me. And so with the McBain book, for example, I didn't read the books in chronological order or anything like that. I had read some of them for my dissertation, and then I just started reading some of the non-87th works and the works written under his own name, Evan Hunter. And I just kind of jumped around, and as I would read, I would take notes And then I would transfer those into my computer. And so it just became a great big, huge computer file that I've just kept adding to. And I basically did the same thing for the Rankin book. It was a little bit more chronological, partly because he's continuing to write. And so each time a new book would come out, I would write another entry, things like that. But with both of them, even with McBain, having sadly passed away in 2005, I kept finding more things that he had written. And even after the book came out, I found a story that uh, hadn't made its way in there because, you know, this was before the internet. He was publishing things uh, under different names and even he'd forgotten about some of them. Actually, Rankin had forgotten about some of the things he'd written too. So (laughs) because they had just written so much in so many genres and in McBain's case under so many different names, it was really difficult to find every single thing he'd written. Yeah, there's uh, the McBain thing is such a challenge, and every time I do any research, it's it's a heck of a rabbit hole that you can get falling down into. Yes, especially with those early short stories when you try to trace where they were originally released. Some of them, not only him with different names, but some of the stories have different names as well. That's right. Which is another another tricky bit for the research. And then sometimes he would take a story and then kind of rewrite it and make it into something different. So not just necessarily turning a short story into a novel like uh, with Sadie when she died and things like that, but um, sometimes he would rework a novel and make it a new novel. 
like the novel Guns is very similar to Doors. I think those are the two that I was talking about that were very similar that I know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it's a, it is a whole new book and a new take on it. I don't really consider it to be a bad thing that he did that, but it's really interesting when someone does that. Yeah, it certainly speaks to the dedication to particular themes that authors have running through their, their career. Mm-hmm. Certainly, McBain, one of the joys of the 87th Precinct for for me, and I think I'm discovering on the podcast, is tracing not just the characters, but the the thematic elements as they go through the books. Yes. Whether, there is, whether it is literally something broad and, and sociopolitical or, say, to do with race or something like that, or it's more to do with the physical changes of a place, the, the mapping in time as much as in, you know, the fixed moment in the book of a city changing and the effects that has. So that's always very interesting, and I think that's very rewarding to do it when you do read them in in order as well. Definitely. And the thing I noticed about both these authors is they both have such an enormous focus on issues of race, multiculturalism, immigration, and particularly McBain, you know, living in the United States, which, of course, has such a an awful history with African Americans and uh, with what's going on in the news right now, that's even uh, more timely. Yeah. And so I think if if fans today went back and read McBain's works, they would see, oh, wow, here was a guy right from the 1950s on who got it and who was really talking about the same kinds of issues, not in the same way, not in a particularly politically correct way, and certainly using some language that people wouldn't use today. But his uh, his heart was really in it, in that message about acceptance and tolerance and embracing the diversity of American society. And Rankin has done the same thing in books like Flesh Market Clothes, for example, where uh, that book is almost entirely about immigration and uh, how immigrants to Scotland are being mistreated and taken advantage of. Those are issues, obviously, that that I'm drawn to in their works. Is there a sort of sweet spot in the research and writing process where you're actually enjoying reading the books as you go along or you always got your mind on taking notes as you go? I I enjoyed every minute of it, of, of the research and the reading. The reading was the fun, easy part. So even though I always had to read with a pencil in my hand and thinking about, okay, what am I going to take note of and underlining things and writing notes in the margins, that wasn't a bad process for me. I really enjoyed that. I'm just so used to it now. It's actually a little bit difficult to read without a pencil in my hand. Uh, the parts of the writing that were not so fun were just the revision parts. You know, when you have, when you get a draft and you've got to redo some of it and you've got to go through the whole thing. And it's with the McBain book, it was an over 800 page manuscript. And with the Rankin book, it was over a thousand pages. Uh, the Rankin book manuscript was actually longer than the McBain book, even though McBain has written more. He wrote over 120 works. And Rankin hasn't quite made it there yet, but I'm sure he will. He's on his way. Yeah. <laughs> I think he likes to reward himself after he finishes something with a beer. So, you know, it's a good uh, it's a good motivator for keeping writing if you keep rewarding yourself. That's certainly one of uh, Ian's yeah, hobbies anyway. For sure. Yeah. So you've, you've finished Ian Rankin. You've done, you've done Ed McBain. Are you taking a rest from crime fiction for a while? Yes. You know, my <laughs> at the request of my friends and family... Uh, I've been instructed that I need to take some time off, at least from the type of writing where I'm under contract and where there's just a massive amount of work to do, because 
it did take a lot out of me. It took a lot of time and uh, it's always kind of weighing on you, you know, oh, I, I've got to finish this. I've got to finish this. And so I will continue to write, but I think the writing I'm going to do now will be a combination of creative writing, genealogical writing, really into tracing my family history. And mm-hmm. um, I will do some more writing about crime fiction, but I'm not going to sign a contract immediately. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's always nice to have a little bit of a breather between projects anyway. Yeah. And obviously, you're the professor of English. Do you use crime fiction as a, as a tool in, in that to, to teach? I do. And I've designed several courses basically around <laughs> McBain and Rankin, or at least around crime fiction. So I'm teaching one right now called Crime Stories. And uh, basically, I try to cover all the genres. And we, you know, we go through Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie and everybody, but uh, McBain and Rankin are always in there. And then I have another course called Murder and Mayhem, and I sneak them into that course as well, even though we do some Stephen Mm -hmm. King and a bit of other stuff. I do teach them pretty much every term of every year. Oh, wonderful. I used to be a, a teacher of music technology and in every class and every module, I'd find a way to sneak the Beatles in there, <laughs> which is appropriate for Liverpool, I suppose. Definitely. Have you got a favourite uh, Golden Age fiction author then, if you've been teaching that earlier period? You know what? It's it's funny because when I was quite young, I read Ellery Queen and Agatha Christie and people like that, and I loved them. And then I got older and as I got into my 20s and 30s, I started reading more of the police fiction and the noir stuff and the, the Scandinavian stuff. And I suddenly thought, oh, the cozies are just too cozy. They're too unrealistic. And I, I started to agree with people like Chandler and McBain, who said, you know, the old lady with the knitting needles has no business solving a crime kind yeah. of thing. But then uh, just recently, I actually picked up Agatha Christie again. And in fact, I should admit, I've also been a major fan of M.C. Beaton. I don't know if you're familiar with her works at all. I've not read any, but yes, I know. I know what you mean. Right. So that Hamish Macbeth and the Agatha Raisin series, and they are definitely in the cozy genre, but they're just such fun to read. They're so refreshing. After you've read one of those really dark, disturbing Scandinavian novels, <laughs> uh, reading some M.C. Beaton is great. But I picked up Agatha Christie again. And was just astounded to rediscover her. Just what a fantastic author she was. So I think I was really undervaluing her before. I think because of the sheer quantity of Christie's work, it's easy to sort of uh, have a feast of it and just come away feeling a bit sick. And then a few <laughs> years later, you realise that actually dipping into it, it is, there's a reason people keep going back to it. That's it's right. a tasty morsel of, of very well put together stuff. I've been reading Marjorie Allingham and, and Nio Marsh as well. Ah. Recently, they're my new discoveries in that that era and I'm enjoying them very much. Right. I was just thinking about Hamish Macbeth. And the, the term cosies is such a great term for that because Hamish Macbeth's probably known most to people over here as a Sunday evening sort of after tea time television show. Right. Robert Carlyle. Robert Carlyle, yeah. So, which is a very cosy slot for a, a crime programme on, on TV. Mm-hmm. I love that show. Yeah, it was it was nice. It was very nice. Even though uh, Beaton herself apparently was quite upset about the casting. All right. Because in the books, Hamish Macbeth is a sort of a large redheaded man, and Robert Carlyle doesn't really fit that bill. <laughs> 
No, well, casting in TV shows is a good uh, a good topic to get onto, I suppose, with Ian Ranking particularly. So presumably you've been you've seen all of the Rebus adaptations. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, so John Hanna, the Ken Stott, and then most recently Brian Cox. Yes, indeed. And I thought they were all brilliant. I mean, they all worked quite well as Rebus. Yeah, and very very good series. Particularly, I, I particularly like the Ken Stott one. Yes, uh, Ken Stott was brilliant as Rebus, I think, but I actually prefer the John Hanna series just because I think that those episodes were longer, they were more accurate to the books, and they had more of a kind of tartan noir feel mm-hmm. uh, than the Stott series. The Stott series was more of a sort of American-style cop show, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think, as far as I'm aware, that Ian Rankin's never been particularly keen on the tv adaptations of his work so far he may correct me on this he doesn't watch them he says he hasn't watched all of them for sure i think he probably watched maybe the first episode of each series and he uh, he supported both actors and i think he has a good relationship with them but i know he wasn't happy about the format of the start series being shorter and he'd really like the uh it's under development hopefully create a new series very soon and he'd like it to be a longer format and perhaps more true to the novels and more of a kind of noir feel to it well that's certainly something he's got in common with McBain in terms of wanting to find the correct version of your characters your your stories on screen which because McBain clearly struggled his entire career with people adapting stuff in a way that he didn't approve of even if he himself was involved at certain times and just a few years ago um, there was supposed to be a new 87th precinct show but I think that didn't pan out because he was a victim of his own success I mean shows like Hill Street Blues and pretty much every American cop show that came afterwards stole his ideas so heavily that an 87th Precinct show now would almost be redundant. Yeah, it's interesting trying to trace the development history of a modern 87th Precinct series because people are always sort of crying out for it as a, as a really obvious fit. But like you say, it's kind of been done in a number of other shows who, who succeed at, say, characters in one show, story in another that's right. Did you watch the 1960s 87th Precinct series? I did, yeah. You know, it's, again, of course, it's necessarily different from the books, and I prefer the books, but it had its moments. Yeah, I th- it's, it's nicely cast, but it's it's certainly not, <laughs> not quite the hard-edged thing that the books are no. at all. <laughs> but it's funny how quickly it was picked up, you know, only... F- Six years after the first book had come out, they they picked it up and it was it was a NBC show. Well, he was really so. wide, riding a wave of success. I think um, after the publication of the Blackboard Jungle in 1954, and then with these three first novels of the 87th Precinct coming out in 56, he was just on fire. I think people were he was really in demand. Certainly. I'm not going to ask you to pin you down to a favourite McBain book because that's really not very fair. Uh, but have you got a favourite sort of era of the McBain books? Because I think they they fall quite nicely into almost like decade blocks in a way. You know, I hadn't really thought of it that way. I, I don't know that I do have a favourite era. I mean, my favourite books come from different time periods, I would say. I'm, I'm a big fan of the novella Merely Hate, which I actually teach in one of my courses. Mm-hmm. And that was fairly recent. Um, but I also like books like He Who Hesitates, which was certainly earlier. Yeah. Just because it's so unique. 
it's written from the point of view of the criminal deciding if he wants to confess. And we see glimpses into the 87th and into Steve and Teddy's lives that we wouldn't normally get. Yeah. And I just found that novel fascinating. Yeah, um, it's interesting you mentioned him merely hate because that's certainly something in our in terms of our podcast that we'll only come to right at the very end, really, because that's that's in Transgressions, his edited mm-hmm. volume, isn't it? And it's so I've I've saved that one and not read it yet, so I look forward to the the handful of stories I've not actually read in the years coming up from where we are now. Oh, you're in for a treat! I think it's great. It's just packed full with all the themes that were important to him. It's centered in New York. And it takes place post 9-11, so it's, it's really topical, but I think it's still relevant today. Yeah, I look forward to that. Talking about New York and back to cities again, you include maps in both, both your books. Yes. Cities and, and place in, in these sorts of stories, I think, are very interesting because they ground things in reality, either by being literally real, as in this street is there or is the equivalent of that. But they're also very malleable and for the purposes of storytelling. Mm-hmm. The other author, I think, that does something very similar to these two, and it might sound a bit strange, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this or you've ever read this author, is Terry Pratchett. No, I haven't, actually. Because his Discworld series, although it's set in a fantastical, not quite sword and sorcery, but med- somewhere medieval type thing, has a whole series of police characters called The Watch, and it's set in this one particular city that many people have mapped, but of course, mm. for his storytelling... It can't really be mapped. Yeah, that's the hard part. (laughs) I was lucky enough to have the help of some great people who had already, uh, with the McBain book, who had already drawn their own maps. Um, Ted Bergman, uh, for example, was just brilliant at that kind of thing. And so he studied all the novels and very carefully mapped out, according to what was said in the books, where everything would be in the squad room and things like that. And of course, McBain knew that uh, he didn't want to use the exact map of Manhattan because then he'd run into problems with people saying, people who knew the city saying, well, if you go there, that building's not there anymore, or that street was renamed or something like that. So that's why he made it a fictional city. When I visited New York, I, I did attempt to find certain places that were equivalent and you can you can do it to a certain extent. Have you spent much time in New York? Uh, again, I've only been there once in the late 90s. All right. I'd love to go back. Yeah, it's it's interesting to try to track something, a, a book series that began in 1956 in a city that's changed so much since 1956. Like yeah. you say, many buildings not there anymore. That's right. And that's something he talks about in the series, of course, and the different groups of the, the, the uh, immigrants coming from different countries. At the start of the series, he talks mainly about Puerto Ricans, but... Uh, in the more recent ones, he's talking about Muslims and all sorts of other people. Yeah. Whereas Edinburgh is, Edinburgh thrives on its heritage. Certainly no one's going to be knocking the castle down anytime soon. <laughs> uh, and so it's a little bit more static, I suppose, in its development. So it's... Well, a bit, but Rankin has talked about actually how much the city has changed throughout the course of his series too. There were areas, for example, in Leith where... Uh, it was um, it was a rundown area, and then it became kind of gentrified. And various parts of Edinburgh have gone the same way. So I think he would say it's changed a lot. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps not on the scale of the tower blocks, but certainly in terms of the nature of some of the areas mm-hmm. in there. It's a much much smaller city, obviously, than New York. Yeah. Uh, another aspect of these books, then, Erin, is that many of them have 
very male casts or male protagonists, but they all feature female characters, sometimes peripherally, sometimes more intrinsic to the actual stories themselves. How do you feel about the male writer's approach to the the female characters? Well, I think that they both attempted to be very progressive in their use of female characters. McBain, of course, starting in the 1950s, his female characters were they started out as decoys and a very minor part of the police department, but that probably reflected reality. But as the series went on, you have people like Detective Eileen Burke and uh, and then the detective in Candyland, the main protagonist there is female. And he was really adamant that he felt that his female characters were quite strong. I asked him that in an interview question over email before he passed away something like, do you think that your female characters have gotten stronger over the years? And he was quite taken aback by that. (laughs) And uh, said that he thought his characters, his female characters had always been strong. And, uh, you know, in a way, I believe they were. I mean, for the time period, certainly, he was trying to be extremely diverse in his cast and uh, sometimes even beyond what would be realistically expected. But I do believe that his female characters got stronger as they went on. Even Teddy Carella, of course, starting out as sort of this deaf mute ideal mate who dotes, yeah. dotes on Corella and just sort of quietly waits for him to come home. But then in the later novels, she starts to branch out on her own and become more independent. And uh, I think that was great. And Rankin, you know, he definitely focuses on Rebus, but but nowadays I'd say there's an equal focus on Siobhan Clark and she's really become one of the main protagonists of the series. And I think fans respond to that as well. And certainly she's become much stronger in recent years. I'm I'm quite happy with uh, the direction that Rankin's taken with Siobhan. It's always good to have a character who can act as an alternative voice and a foil to a, a very particular type of male character in there. And yes, Siobhan certainly holds her own in those stories. Definitely. And Rankin, of course, has said that Siobhan is actually more like himself than Rebus is. So Siobhan is is Ian Rankin's mouthpiece in the series, in a way. Although, yeah, he's given uh, Rebus the record collection, though. Yes. Well, and Siobhan gets the more independent and folksy kind of bands that Rebus wouldn't listen to. But Rebus, of course, has the big classic rock collection. (laughs) It's interesting about McBain taking a little bit of umbrage at your suggestion about character, his female characters not being uh, the greatest at the start of his, his writings. And from my research, he seems to be quite a proud man and, and would take, take he would bristle when challenged on certain things. But I always remember there's a quote from the New York Times reviewer Marilyn Stasio, or Stasio mm-hmm. who, who cornered him once and and said why don't you write better female characters and he was absolutely livid that she would dare to challenge him (laughs) and then of course she said he later on he did yep and he wrote a whole book mothers and daughters uh about women from the perspective of women i think just to prove that he could do it yeah and certainly i think that authors can i mean if they're able to they certainly have a right to write if you're male to write from a female perspective and vice versa yeah and readers also have the option of being critical as well, of course. even of something that, that that they like, which I think is very important, especially when you're dealing with, with books that have the police at the heart of them. I'm sure a lot of people are looking at things in, an, in a new light at the moment due to everything that's, that's going on. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, for sure. I, it's a shame that McBain isn't alive now because I'd like to see his take on things. I'd like to see how he would work that into a novel with the, the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement and everything that's going on. I think he would be able to produce a really fantastic novel. Indeed, yeah. Okay, so Erin, I think we'll wrap that up there. Thank you very much for, for joining me to talk about these books, which, as I will will have said in our introduction, I recommend these to anyone who's reading these series and certainly collecting these series. They make a an excellent accompaniment to your shelf full of McBain's or your shelf full of Ian, Ian Rankin books. <laughs> Once again, congratulations. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you.